now this week, a specialist defence forces team has been sent to the Turkish-Syrian border as part of a bid to bring Lisa Smith uh, and her two-year-old daughter back to Ireland. Uh, the Dundalk a native and former Irish soldier travelled to Syria three years ago to join the so-called Islamic State. Uh, her return to Ireland has been... Her return or non-return uh, to Ireland has been generating controversy. Well, joining me now from our Cork studio is Dr Orla Lynch, who's Head of Criminology at UCC, uh, with a background in psychology, Orla. Uh, you have a special expertise in this whole concept of radicalisation and how you de-radicalise, and you've been following uh, the Lisa Smith uh, case. What's your analysis of her in as much as you can from what you've read in terms of her conversion uh, and in terms of her decision uh, to go essentially into an area of war. Uh, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Um, I suppose she's not unique in that um, over the past number of years there's been thousands of uh, so-called foreign fighters have left European countries to join ISIS and their affiliates and also groups who are fighting in opposition to ISIS. And there's estimates that um, about 10 to 14 percent of all the individuals who travelled were women. So she's um, she's certainly not on her own. Yeah. Um, in, in terms of her own journey, we, what we know from some of uh, more, uh, uh, Noreen Costello's reporting and, and other reports from various think tanks, um, she was quite active in seeking to join ISIS. So she was, she was quite deliberate. You know, she chose a very deliberate journey. And, um, you know, by all accounts, she was quite active out there in that world. Knowing why somebody joined is, is almost impossible because the only way we can actually know is for them to explain it to us. Yeah. But knowing how they got involved is quite interesting. And, and you mentioned there the process of uh, conversion to Islam. Yeah. Um, that's a very normal process. You know, many people undergo that process. So I think the focus is not necessarily on that, but the focus is on what we'd call meaning making and a search for identity. So um, when we think about why and how people get involved in ISIS, a lot of the time we're looking at things like identity, personal identity, social identity, a shift in how you see the in-group and the out-group, but also action-orientated um, individuals. So people are looking to do something. And if you think about what ISIS offers, ISIS offers individuals the opportunity to enact what they think. So it's doing, it's the doing of, of the radicalism that's the appeal of ISIS. It, well, I mean, it's perfectly valid for anybody to convert to any religion Absolutely. Uh, uh, that they want to. Uh, there's a question mark over it if you're going into where it is known there has been some of the most savage brutality visited on, you know, fellow citizens of the world. Exactly. I suppose the issue is many people will deny that they knew that was happening. And a lot of the time people will talk about uh, this idea of a, a true and a pure Islamic life. Um, unrelated to religion, this is not about religion, this is about an individual seeking out this clarity, um, you know, driven by feelings of social exclusion or discrimination at home. They then seek out this more simple life, this more rule-guided behaviour that uh, that ISIS were promising. But other parts of it are... are um, to be some part of something bigger, to be part of something divine. 
um, you know, and, and seeking that kind of belonging out there. Um, and, and also oftentimes running away from situations they're not happy with in their home environment. So we saw a lot of uh, individuals from Europe leaving uh, due to conflict with parents, issues in school, you know, unemployment. Um, well, kind of none of those appear to uh, apply to her. And you must mm-hmm. remember that she said, when you when you talk about action, I mean, she said that in terms of war, she was not engaged. Yeah, and every example you can think of, we've witnessed. So people who were going... Uh, to fight, people who are going to be doctors, people who are going for excitement, people are going because their friends went. So there's no one way of knowing why individuals actually went. And the many, many stories we've heard um, are extremely diverse. Now, obviously, somebody who travels to a war zone to engage potentially in political violence will say they didn't engage in any illegal activity. So that we don't know. And any of the individuals who do interviews on their return tend to say they weren't involved in violence, that they were there in a support capacity. So I suppose that's kind of not very useful in, in terms of our In other words, they do, they're not going to incriminate themselves. Obviously, yeah. 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 Uh, in terms of her rights, it, mm-hmm. it strikes me sometimes that, that there nearly isn't a, a question about her rights She's an Irish woman. Her her daughter is an Irish um, citizen. That's it. I mean, we have all sorts of citizens and we we can't leave somebody stateless. I think it's against all the international conventions to do so anyway. Absolutely. But the other issue related to that is the fact that the alternative is to leave her and her child in Syria. People have been transported to Iraq for prosecution in Iraq. And we know that there is massive process violations um, in those trials. There's a real risk of torture um, under Iraqi counterterrorism law. There's a, the death sentence is a possibility and life imprisonment. The other alternative is that Syria, if they take over territory, that they would be involved in prosecution. And we know that Human Rights Watch have talked about the violations there. So there really are very few alternatives here. And the Turkish, and because the Turkish have said words to the effect that they don't want to run a hotel for uh, for all other nationalities who kind of are reluctant to welcome home their own citizens. Absolutely. And we do have responsibilities under international law. So... Um, and the other thing, of course, is that this individual hasn't been charged or prosecuted of any crime. So that's, you know, that's the other side of this. Yeah, and I mean, the Gardaí said that they will be talking to her. But as of now, there's no, no evidence of any sort whatsoever. Um, but, but, Alan, I'll go to this one. I mean, it, as, as I said, sometimes it seems to me odd that there's even a discussion. She's a, she has her rights. The same as... A, a very somebody who did very other undesirable things have their rights. Yeah, no, I I would tend to agree with you uh, on this. I presume there are sort of procedures laid down that if an Irish citizen finds themselves in difficulties in a particular situation, uh, that the state acts accordingly. Uh, it doesn't, in a sense, act as sort of judge and jury in advance. And again, I think you pointed out that while the circumstances here are extremely uh, unusual, to put it mildly, yeah. um, you know, in, in, instinctively you might have a reaction that, well, maybe this person isn't entitled to exactly the same uh, whatever uh, systems as, as other people. But uh, I think as, as you've described... As I, somebody I, I, I working for an NGO, say they got into difficulties. Yeah, no, ab- absolutely and I suppose the fact that there is a, a child involved as well uh, just sort of adds uh, further to it and I, I, I think actually I mean the, the British had a very strange case on this but remember they, they, they essentially uh, 
dropped one of their citizens on the basis that they also had Canadian citizenship. Now, I think this um, frustrated the Canadians enormously because, again, you can render somebody stateless in a sense. A state can sort of say they're not part of us if yeah. the person has dual citizenship and then it sort of falls back. Or Pakistani. It, there, there were a number of cases where yes. these sort of... But, I mean, in this case, this, this person doesn't. Uh, and I would have to say, from a sort of an, an Irish citizenship perspective, I would prefer to see our state take a compassionate view rather than a sort of a, you know, a, a nasty sort of view where we're saying, well, we didn't like the circumstances and we're just going to let this person hang uh, in a sense. And again, I think it's clear if this person ends up in Iraq and a variety of other places, uh, it, it would be pretty horrible. And I think we as a, you know, as a state at that point would, would feel horrible if, if the person was, for example, to get the death penalty. So I, I think compassion, I suppose, is the, is the drive. Okay, Lucinda Creighton was saying, it could be beneficial to us. You read that. There. Yeah, I did, <laughs> Marion. And Lucinda Creighton goes through some of the issues saying that, OK, from a national self-interest, she might be a danger and that could uh, mitigate against her not coming back. But equally from uh, intelligence she may have, that might be very, very useful. Uh, but also pointing out the humanitarian considerations. Yeah. And, you know, EU member states, the death penalty is ruled out in all circumstances. That's one of the values of the European Union. And to send to Iraq and risk her being possibly subject to the death penalty uh, would be a no-no. So in, in my view, as Alan says, I mean, we really don't have a choice but mm -hmm. to accept her back and particularly because her, her young child is an Irish citizen, I presume, as right, well. Right, Yvonne? Yeah, I'd agree with all that's been said. And I wonder as well, would there be a danger of, you know, if the Irish state were to abandon her to her fate as such, there'd be a danger of making something of a martyr of her, you know, that those who might like to follow in her footsteps would then be sort of justified in saying, well, your own state doesn't care about you. You know, it's as bad as any other place and be almost, you know, counterproductive to some extent. I think there's a huge humanitarian obligation on us to, to bring her home. She's an Irish citizen abroad in a position of danger. We should bring her home um, and her child. And then she should be prosecuted. There must be a process of law then. If she's committed offences, she should be investigated and prosecuted for those in the same way as anyone else right. would be. Um, but as, as you say, there may be value in getting, she may have information that she... Uh, well, this is what, yeah. well, broadly what Lucinda Creighton was, was, yeah, was, she, was writing she, if, about. If she's today. been an insider, she may have right. information useful to us or the international community. If I can go back to you, Orla, in Cork, um, given what happened at the Basque clan, Mm -hmm. And given what happened in the airport in Belgium and given what happened at concerts, people are understandably very, very nervous of, you know, as it were, being within a, a danger mm -hmm. of some sort of some dreadful catastrophe happening. Mm -hmm. That's understandable. I suppose the thing to always bear in mind is if we go back to basics on this and we're talking in Ireland about five people to date who have returned home. None of those individuals who were foreign fighters, either for ISIS and affiliated groups or for related groups, have been deemed any threat. And we do have to bear in mind that th there is hysteria that goes with this, understandable hysteria, but the threat hasn't manifest here. And the other thing to bear in mind... Yes, is 
yes, that is true. I mean, there's always going to be a threat at just the level. But if you think about the battle clan, if you think about the other attacks across Europe, these were not what you might call lone wolves. These were not individuals who appeared out of nowhere. These were highly networked individuals with involvement from central control. But that's so- how she got involved, as I understand it. I mean, she she was searching for meaning in her life mm-hmm. and and she she looked at many options and she, she took to Islam and she read the Quran and all that. Mm-hmm. And then she dealt online with somebody who, it is alleged, radicalised her. Yeah, and you have an awful lot of people who we would call are radicalised that never do any violence. So you can have support for ISIS, you can be out there and never do any violence. And there's a huge leap between holding extreme ideas and doing violent behaviour. That's not to say she hasn't done it or the same as we don't know about anybody who's been out there, what they've done. But we do have to bear in mind that it's quite an unlikely scenario that as a woman in ISIS, she was involved in violence. Now, not her in particular, but all women who were out there. They had limited opportunities for violence. But also, even if this individual was, like other women, the recidivism rate for people involved in political violence is very, very low. So, like, if you talk about ordinary uh, crime and offending, recidivism, so repeat offending, is 50 to 70%. The figures we know from political violence and terrorism is under 10%. So, again... It's not to dismiss a threat, but we yeah. have to be rational in how we think about it. Indeed. I'm not sure that all of the women mm-hmm. that travelled from all of the places uh, that went out to ISIS, that you can say th- that they didn't fight. No, you can't say that, but the opportunities were much more limited than for men. Right, OK, you wanted to come in there, Yvonne. I was just going to make the point that Lisa Smith, the, of, of anyone who's, you know, she's known to the authorities. Mm-hmm. She poses less of a threat threat than those who we don't know. So, Fair you point. know, if she's brought mm-hmm. back, yeah. she'll mm-hmm. be kept under a level of surveillance, I'm sure. Uh, I've always have queries about this, but Orla Lynch, how do you de-radicalise somebody? You know the way we, you know, you talk about some group of people and they're described as a cult and how do you change them from being a cult? But your people can call anybody's religion a cult. True, I suppose... When we think about radicalization, a lot of the time we think about somebody being brainwashed or this kind of, you know, lack of control of their thoughts and their behaviours. But if you look at what other countries do when these people return, so the UK have a very comprehensive model. Australia has a comprehensive what does, model. What does the UK do? So the UK, for example, has a prevent strategy, first of all, which is aimed to stop it happening before it actually does. Yeah. And they would have a voluntary system called Channel where you can refer people who you believe are at risk of radicalization. So teachers, police officers, community community members, family members can refer individuals to channel and they would intervene to prevent radicalization. Now, there's a problem with that because 70% of people who are referred never get any intervention. So there's a very much a false positive going on there. But of those individuals who... Um, who maybe, come back, though. Yeah, who come back or have been in prison, there is a process and it's, it's, um, there's not a whole lot known about the process. But it's called um, a disengagement and desistance program, so DP, uh, DDP, and it covers people who come back from Syria and Iraq. It also covers people who um, cannot be prosecuted because they don't have the evidence for it. And that's the kind of situation we might be looking at here. And what they do is they offer um, kind of personalised intervention, tailored intervention, practical support, things like housing, education, identity therapies. Um, they look at... I can hear people yeah. getting angrier and yeah. angrier <laughs> by the moment, you know. I know. Because, you know, that you, 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 you join a violent 
militant organization, mm-hmm. go to a war zone where there are pretty amazing things happen mm-hmm. and you come back and the first thing you get sorted out on housing, no, I don't think that will go down too well, No, uh, to tell you the truth. It's the same as if you look at kind of probation opportunities that would have in Ireland, it's the same as in the UK. So it's that type of measure. It's, it's the wraparound okay. services that probation tend to offer. So I know it sounds like this is a very specialised approach and it is, but it, this is kind of best practice probation when you think about what it actually is. Okay. Okay, Dr Orla Lynch, Head of Criminology in UCC, thank you very much indeed.